pastor of First Baptist Church of Orchard, Texas. More information on First Baptist Church Orchard can be found at fbcorchard.com. Our scripture this morning is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 7, verses 21 through 27. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles. And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Dear Jesus, God, I ask that you would be with me this morning as we deal with these weighty, weighty matters. God, I ask that you would speak through me, that if there's anything that I'm about to say that does not come from you, that you would stop my mouth up, that you'd stop the ears of my hearers up. If, there's every, if there is anything that I have forgotten to say, Lord, that you would say it. God, I ask that you would be in control that your word would be spoken and your word would be heard. Lord, I ask these things in your holy name. Amen. My grandfather uh, was a, a businessman. He was a businessman his entire life. He started off um, working for a uh, manufacturing company. They manufactured the registers that you see there, uh, what, what directs the air when it comes out. Um, spent 20 years doing that and then uh, he started his own company. So he spent his entire life in business, buying and selling, uh, doing business deals with people, making his living based on his reputation and by his um, ability to meet the needs of other people. And as a small child growing up, I remember one of the most, um, one of his catchphrases, one of the things that he always said was talk is cheap. Talk is cheap. And I would go to him and I'd spin out these grandiose plans for my life. I was going to do this and I was going to do that. And then he'd look at my grades and say, Andrew, talk is cheap. Talk is cheap. You have to put your money where your mouth is. You have to back up the things you say with action. Otherwise, there's plenty of people out there who say plenty of different things. That is something that impinges on what we're going to speak about this morning because there is this sense that while words are important, words without deeds are empty. Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount with a statement that's very much like this. See, Jesus has been spending the last three or four chapters in the book of Matthew. I mean, we've spent probably three months, four months on this. I know you guys have all been here for Sermon on the Mount, and you're ready for us to move on to something else. Jesus has spent all this time talking about the ethics of the kingdom of God, what his expectation is for people who call themselves his followers. And he's concluding it. And he's concluding it by telling his disciples, you need to have listened to what I said, and you need to do what I said. See, he was talking to a group of people who had a cultural understanding 
of their position in the kingdom. They were born into the kingdom. They were the children of Abraham. They were in the kingdom of God by virtue of the fact that they were born as Jews. And he's trying to get across to them that that's, that that's not the case. He's trying to get across to them that what you do actually, actually matters. See, we are not saved by our words. We are, are saved by the condition of our hearts. That's very, very important for you to remember this morning. We're not saved by our words. We're saved by the condition of our hearts. The stark truth is not everyone who claims to be a Christian will be saved. Many people followed Jesus, right? He had thousands of people in front of him when he was talking. He fed thousands of people. People left the cities by the hundreds and by the thousands to come and follow Jesus out to the countryside. As he went into Jerusalem, <clears throat> excuse me, for Palm Sunday, thousands of people flocked the roads and put their coats down and cried Hosanna to the highest. And yet, a week later, where were they all? A week later, not only did they not come and support him, but they cried out, crucify him, and mocked him as he was led through the streets. All of his disciples, the men who said, who fought over who would be the greatest in the kingdom of God, rejected him and they ran away. Talk is cheap. Talk is cheap. And so he says to them, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out demons. And in your name perform many miracles. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. See, salvation does not come from ethnicity. It doesn't come from who you were born to be. It doesn't come from the racial group you come from. Just because you are a red-blooded white American who votes Republican doesn't mean you're a Christian. Just because you live, listen to Shan, Sean Hannity on a recorded loop all the time, every day, that doesn't make you a Christian. Right? If you have memorized every Billy Graham sermon that's ever been done, you're not a Christian. Okay? That doesn't make you a Christian. The Jews had to be made to understand that they were not children of Abraham simply by being born into it. In fact, over and over again in the Old Testament, God declares to them, he says, I can make stones into the children of Israel. Don't get comfortable. Don't get complacent. I can raise up from the very ground children of Israel. That's what John the Baptist tells the Pharisees when he's out there baptizing people. He's saying, don't come here and think that you're good just because of where you were born. See, many people came to become children of Israel that weren't born ethnically Jewish. Some of the most uh, striking examples of faith in the Old Testament are come from non-Jews. Tamar the Canaanite, the, the prostitute who let the, the Jews into the, the city of Jericho. She wasn't a she wasn't a Jew. She's in the lineage of Christ. Ruth, she wasn't a Jew. 
She was a Moabitess. She came from the, from the, the people of Moab. She's in the genealogy of Christ. Naaman the Assyrian, right, who gets cured from leprosy. He's not one of the children of Israel. He's one of the Assyrians. He's the people that came through and conquered Israel. See, after the exile, God came to his people and he said that he would no longer hold them accountable for the sins of their fathers. Every person would be responsible before God for what they did and what they didn't do. And Jesus is trying to get that across to these people. He's not saying, he's saying that salvation is not about who your parents was. He's saying salvation is not about supernatural signs, about manifestations of power that you have. Right? We've talked about that. That, that just because you do wondrous and miraculous things, that doesn't mean that you're from God. The devil is an angel of light. Right? He looks great. He leads people astray because of that. Demons do signs and wonders, right? We, we hear in the, in the New Testament about people that are possessed by demons that can tell the future, right? That have supernatural strength, right? Just because it's powerful doesn't mean it comes from God. The Egyptians, the Persians, the Babylonians, they all had magicians that could do amazing things. That doesn't mean that they're from God. See, power does not mean that something comes from God. Salvation is not about who your parents were. It, it's not about manifestations of power. And it's not about words or appearances. God's not some pagan deity who sits up there and wants you to invoke words of, of power or gibberish to him in order to control him. That's not how God works. Jesus tells his disciples not to pray like the pagans, not to use vain words. He, in the same way he tells the Jews that they're not to pray by the temple and expect that, that God is going to keep the wrath from coming. Now, on the surface, that doesn't sound very disturbing to us. We're like, well, sure, we don't use magical words. right? We're, we're, not, we're not pagans. I don't, I'm not up here cutting myself, invoking the name of, of pagan deities dancing around here in a loincloth. Right? That, that's not us. We're more sophisticated than that. But when you start to think about it, how many of us have put our faith in the sinner's prayer. Right? How many of us have put our faith in a set of words that we were taught to say? See, Jesus, when he says to them, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will be saved, is saying something that's very disturbing. When he says, anyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, he's saying something very specific there. Saying, Lord, Lord, like that is the way of invoking the name of the deity. Okay, it's, it's this extreme statement of lordship. And it comes from the, the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint. And every place that they would translate the Hebrew words uh, Adonai Eluhenu, the Lord God, they would translate it Lord, Lord. He's saying, not everyone who says, Jesus, you are God, is saved. That's disturbing. Because what have we been taught? We've been taught that if you make a profession of faith, you're saved. But see, salvation is about more than just telling Jesus 
some words. It's about more than just saying some stuff. Say, salvation is about more than who your parents were. It's more, more than, than words of, of, of affirmation that you say. It's more, about, it's more than ritual. It's more than, than all of these different things. You are not a Christian because your parents were Christians. You're not a Christian because you've spoken in tongues or because you've been baptized in the Spirit or slain in the Spirit. And you're not a Christian because you came forward 20 years ago and prayed the sinner's prayer. That does not make you a Christian. See, not everyone who makes a profession of faith will end up in heaven. But this does not mean that you can lose your salvation. And we have to be very careful with this. Right? Because we can read this and go, well, you know, this person made a profession of faith and they're a Christian. And, uh, you know, now Jesus is saying they're not a Christian. Well, that means you can lose your salvation. No. That's not what Jesus is saying. You cannot lose your salvation. Hear me. You cannot lose your salvation. But you can be wrong. Okay? As a Christian, we cannot lose our salvation because God has chosen us. And he has added us to his people from before the beginning of the world. And his will cannot be changed. Okay? Now we're going to talk about some stuff here. And it's going to be kind of hard. It's going to be kind of complicated. So I need you to pay attention. Okay? The wrong view of eternal security gets us into a lot of trouble. The wrong view of salvation can set us on the wrong foundation. When I was in college, I accepted Christ. I prayed the sinner's prayer. And as many evangelism books will tell you, the guy who talked to me said, you're saved now from now until forever because you prayed that prayer. And my faith was in that prayer. And that's not correct. See, this isn't what Jesus or the disciples taught. Jesus told us that a good tree can't bear, good, can't bear bad fruit and that we could tell a tree by its fruit. He said that we would be judged by the way that we judge others. He said that if we deny him before men, then he will deny us before God. He said that if we don't treat the least among us as if they were him, then he would number us among the goats and send us off in eternal punishment. He doesn't say, if you do all these things, but you prayed this prayer, then you're good. He says, if you do these things, I never knew you. And that's the key here. You can't lose your salvation, but you can be wrong about having it. To understand where eternal security comes from, We've got to understand some deep things about Christ. See, every true Christian was chosen before the beginning of time. We know from Scripture that God knows who his people are. This makes sense. This only makes sense. He's God. He sees all of time in one moment. He knows who his people are. And he tells us that in Scripture. The psalmist sings about how our days are numbered before we were even born. In our mother's womb, our God knew us and he knit us and he created us. Our God is sovereign and he is in control of all things. Romans 8, 28 through 29 says that those who were predestined 
were called according to his purpose, and that those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Ephesians 1.11 says, In him we are also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Finally, Peter says it this way. He says, God's elect have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Now, there's a lot of controversy about what this means. Theologians disagree about how this works. Some people say God has foreknown who his people will be. He knows who's going to choose him. And so that's how he elects them. These people stress the sovereignty of God, that God, I'm sorry, the, the free will of man, that God has free will and that God knows what we in our free will will choose and he elects us before the beginning of time. Other people say, no, God knows who he wants to choose and that enables us to choose when it's our opportunity. The scope of that discussion is well beyond the 20-minute sermon that I promised Jerry that I would teach. Wanda. Wanda. I promised Wanda 20 minutes. <laughs> These nuances are important, but they're not what we're going to talk about today. What we're going to talk about today is the fact that whether you believe in, human, in free will or sovereign grace of God, predestination is there. And it forms the basis of our eternal security because God makes promises based on those that he has called. Okay? Those that he has ingrafted and chosen to be his sheep. Those that God has chosen and called will not fall away. The Bible calls these people the elect, calls them God's children, calls them the sheep of God. And it makes promises based on that. The Bible calls these, uh, says that regardless of the title, these different people will have, will have promises that apply to them. No one can bring a charge against God-elect because they have been paid for. There is no crime that they have committed that isn't paid for by the blood of God. Nothing can separate the elect from the love of Christ. God makes everything work together for the good of the elect. That's that verse that we always talk about, for God works all things together for good. But it's not the good of everybody. It's God works all things together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. Right? All those who God saves will be glorified. God loves his children so much that nothing can separate them from him. He knows his sheep. John 10, 27 says this, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. If you are one of God's sheep, you cannot be lost. He is sovereign and you are his. In John 6, 37, he says, it says that Jesus is stating that everyone that the Father gives to the Son will come to him and he will raise them up on the last day. If God gives you to Christ, you are his. Forever. Period. Christians have been chosen by God and called into a relationship with him that will last for eternity. They are his sheep, and they will not fall away. The problem is figuring out whether you're one of God's sheep or whether you're not. 
And so what Jesus does over and over and over again, what Paul does over and over and over again is to give signs that help us to identify what the state of our soul is. Right? Many people think that, that they're saved and that they have this fire insurance that they're protected. Right? Oh, you know, we, we said this prayer. No, no, no. Just because you said some words doesn't mean that you're changed. Talk is cheap. Jesus says it this way. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So how can we be sure that we're one of God's elect, that we're saved? First, you have to have been born again. You have to have been born again. Christ is clear about this. So salvation is a life-changing, life-altering event. The salvation experience is the culmination of a process that does not begin with you. It begins millennia before you, eons before you, before the beginning of the world. Romans 8.30 says it this way, And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. See, salvation begins in eternity past, where in whatever process God decides who he's going to call to himself. Our salvation continues into the recent past, 2,000 years ago, when Christ, knowing all of your sins, dies for you on the cross. Our salvation is claimed in us, though. When through the work of the Holy Spirit, we are remade. The Holy Spirit comes into us and convicts us of our sin, shows us the places that we are falling short over and over and over again. And you know what this means. You know the guilt that comes from seeing your sin the way that God sees it. The Holy Spirit convicts us of our sins and opens our eyes up to the reality of the gospel where we see the redemptive work of Christ. We cry out in repentance and we accept the grace of God in faith. And that faith is credited to us as righteousness. In obedience, we die to ourselves and we accept the Lordship of Christ. This is so much more than saying some words. This is something that happens deeply inside of you. It is so incredibly crushing that Christ described it as being born again. Any of you that has ever, that's ever witnessed a birth know what that looks like. It's not an easy, simple, clean process. It's messy and it's bloody. And it's real. You know, I mean, <laughs> it's cool. <laughs> but, but beautiful and awesome. <laughs> right? Paul describes this. How does Paul describe it? He says that he has been crucified with Christ. That it's no longer he who lives, but Christ who lives in him. And the life that he lives, he lives in faith in the Son of God who loved him and died for him. Okay, sometimes this happens all at once. Sometimes some of you can remember the minute that you accepted Christ, that Christ came into your life, that you were changed. Some of you, this was a process. 
You, you grew up in the church and, and you just came to the place where you knew that your sins were forgiven. You gave your life to Christ. However you got there, there is a moment marked by disjunction, separation between who you were and who you are. That's what being born again means. And if you don't have that, you are in trouble. If you have never changed, then you're in trouble. It is a change that is so dramatic that Jesus describes it as being born again. And over and over again in Scripture, we are enjoined to seek out this new birth in Christ. Paul describes it as dying to self, however you want to conceptualize it. You have to change. Because this change involves the Holy Spirit coming into you and the love of Christ being inside of you. And it means that you will exhibit the fruits of the Spirit. It doesn't mean that you're earning your way into heaven. Right? It doesn't mean that you're doing a bunch of good stuff. It means that your heart has changed, and that changed heart is driving your action. Salvation is a life-changing, course-altering event, and you change from a bad tree into a good tree. The fruit that you produce is different. It's different as, a, as a, 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 an olive tree and a thorn bush are. Nobody goes out and eats thorns. Everybody likes olives. Well, not everybody, but I like olives. Or figs. Figs are good. Nobody goes out and says, man, I'm, I'm going to go have me some thorn jam. That's good stuff right there, buddy. Thistle jam is the best. No. A good tree bears good fruit. Paul declares what this looks like in Romans chapter 10. It's something that we go back to, but we need to look at it. It says, if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. See, our profession of faith must be verbal, right? It's got to be a verbal thing. We have to profess our faith. But it isn't just verbal. Like an iceberg, it travels down deep into the water to the essence of who we are, to our very heart and our very soul, and it changes us. Our actions confirm or deny the presence of God in our heart. More than our words ever our actions speak much louder and more consistently than our words. Jesus said it this way. He said, whoever has my commands and keeps them, he is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and show myself to them. Whoever has my commands and keeps them, because talk is cheap. And actions speak louder than words. Obedience to Christ is not the path to salvation. It is the outward confirmation of an inward change. We say that about baptism, right? When we do baptism here, it's an outward expression of an inward choice. A life lived in conformity to the will of God is a statement made every day. And every minute of every day that you are a new creation, that you have been born again, this statement, the symbol, doesn't end in baptism. It begins with baptism, and it echoes through your life until you die. We have to move beyond this idea that, that, that 
salvation and transformation is this one-time event. It is a constant lifestyle that is driven from a changed heart. So what do we do with this? What does this matter? How does, what does this mean? It means that you should spend your life constantly testing the validity of your salvation. Oh, pastor, I'm supposed to doubt my salvation? A little bit. A little bit is healthy. Paul said it this way. Paul wants us to test our salvation, and he calls us to do it, right? Having that, that unease inside of you is not a sin. Having that unease inside of you is a sign that the Holy Spirit is going, hey, wake up, buddy, what's going on? Paul says it this way, examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Examine yourself. Don't look back on something you did 20 years ago. Examine yourself now. Are you in the faith? Test yourselves. Don't, re don't you realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test, right? If Christ is in you, you will resemble that. He will drive you to do things. Were you born again? Are you born again? Do you know in your heart that you are a sinner and that you've been saved by nothing more than God's grace? Or do you trust in your own actions? Do you really think that you're a good person? Have you been a Christian so long or have you been in the bubble so long that you think, you know, I'm a good, I'm a good guy. I am better. I'm different and better than prostitutes that live on the street or, or these guys that live underneath bridges, right? Am I, am I really better than that? I'm different somehow. No, no. See, if you are truly saved, you will know that that is not from you. That you live by the grace of God. Amen. Do you believe in Christ and have you claimed him as the Lord of your life? Is he the Lord of your life? Like, is he really the Lord of your life? Or is he some dude that you go and talk to every now and then? These are questions that you need to ask yourself on a regular basis. What are the motivations for your actions? Why do you do the things that you do? And what does it say about the condition of your heart? Is your, is your life built around love for your neighbor? Or is it built around hate? Because 1 John says it this way, if we hate our brother, then the love of God is not in us. That's pretty simple. If you roll around hating everybody around you, mad at the world all the time, you got an issue that you need to deal with. And it may be that you don't have Jesus. Are you one of those people that everybody's always against you? You know, like, oh, everybody's always against me. Everything, nothing's ever going my way. Everybody's mad at me all the time, and it's all their fault, and I'm always getting the wrong end of the deal. Bro, if you always get the wrong end of the deal, if you're always the, the person that people are picking on, and if everybody's like that, you need to look and make, it might be you. It might not be everybody else. You may not be the only sane one in the building. You may be the crazy one. Okay? You need to do some inward introspection, some looking at who you are. Do you exhibit the fruits of the Spirit? Is your life by, marked by peace or conflict? Do you love more than you hate? Are you self-controlled or self-destructive? These are all things that you have to look at. I'm not telling you you're going to be perfect, right? Nobody except Jesus lives a sinless life. We're all going to screw up every day. We are. That's just the way it is. First John says, if we say that we have no sin and we lie, the truth is not in us. Go drive in rush hour. You'll see, right? 
Watch your favorite sports team lose, and you'll see how you feel. The Ags lost this weekend. Yeah, they do. Peter rejected Christ three times, 24 hours after telling him that he was going to go to his death with him. Right? Paul persecuted this church. Paul called himself the chief among all sinners. We are not going to be perfect, but our lives will be marked by the Holy Spirit convicting us of our sin and working on us on our sin. Brothers and sisters, if you see your lifestyle as a persistent, blatant, unrepentant sin, that should make you worry. If you can look God in the face and spit at him, you got some issues you have to deal with there because the Holy Spirit will indwell you and will convict you of your sin. And if you can live for 20 years in a state of sin and, it not, and you be okay with it, then you're either stifling the Holy Spirit a lot or the Holy Spirit isn't talking to you. Christians should sense the power of the Holy Spirit moving within them, convicting them. It doesn't mean you're not going to sin. It does mean that you're going to feel terrible when you sin. It does mean that you will be broken by your sin. It does mean that God will transform you, that you will begin to see the fruits of repentance in your life. It, you have got to begin to live a life of examination so that when you die and when you stand before God and say, Lord, Lord, he does not say to you, away from me, you evildoer, I never knew you. If you look inside yourself today, if you see that you are not in a place where you are born again, you have the opportunity right now to profess your faith in Christ. You have the opportunity right now to respond to the grace that is coming into you. This is not an accident. This is the opportunity that Christ is giving you to turn from who you used to be as he awakens inside of you the Holy Spirit convicting you as he opens your eyes to it. Don't reject it. Don't run away from it. Don't hide from it. It's real. And it's of desperate, life-changing importance. In a moment, we're going to have a time of invitation. And if you've never made a commitment to Christ, if you have never given yourself to him, come forward. You can accept Christ here. But don't just accept Christ. Be transformed by his power so that you exhibit the fruits of the Spirit and the fruits of repentance. Become a changed person. Then, talk will not be cheap because your actions will speak louder than your words. Please bow your heads with me. Dear Jesus, God, thank you so much for these people. Thank you so much for being the God that calls us to yourself that numbers us among your sheep. God, thank you for opening our eyes to the realities of who you are. Lord, I ask that you would, that you would do that over and over and over again, that this would become real to us, that we would know you and seek you and seek to be transformed by you so that our actions 
would speak louder than our words. Lord, I ask these things in your holy name. Amen.